This sermon, He is Worthy, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, July 16th, 2023 at Sovereign Grace Church. Glad that you're here. Glad you decided to spend a summer Sunday with us. We've been preaching through the Psalms. We're spending the entire summer in the Psalms. We'll, we'll preach our last Psalm, at least in this series, uh, on uh, Labor Day weekend. So we have, we have a number of weeks to go, and I'm grateful, as I've heard from many of you, that how this series has been a blessing, and your pastors can say the same in our own lives. But open up your Bibles to Psalm 47. Last week we were in Psalm 46. Today we are looking at Psalm 47, and stand with me to read God's Word once you have your Bibles open. Psalm 47, verse 1. This, this will be a hard psalm to read and contain myself. <laughs> this psalm, for the record, is meant to be shouted. <laughs> I'm not going to do that this morning, but I might shout a few times before we're all done. He is worthy, amen? amen. Verse 1, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. He subdued people under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us. The pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of of a trumpet, sing praises to God. Sing praises, sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on the holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, from the shields of the, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Maybe seated. Let's ask the Spirit of God for help now. Oh Lord. Thank you that you are in this place. You have taken up residence in the hearts of your people. And when you gather your people to praise you and exalt you, you are in our midst. Your spirit is here with us, working in us and through us for our good in powerful ways and in unique ways. And so we ask now that, that as your word is preached, that your spirit would do that unique work that only he can do. That if there is anyone in this room or looking in at home, Lord, that your spirit would come with power and conviction to save. For all that who, who have already tasted of the great salvation in Christ, Lord, we ask that you would 
thrill our hearts even more with that reality. Stir us afresh with the glorious reality of the gospel taking hold in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a couple weeks ago, I was, watching, uh, I was watching a YouTube clip, and it was of a street preacher. Um, I think he was in the UK. And he was on the corner preaching the gospel as a gay uh, pride parade was happening. He was there intentionally. I think it was the, the, maybe the last day of Pride Month. And I was impressed with this dude. <laughs> uh, he was humble. He was compassionate. He was biblical. He was obviously courageous. There were a few people who came up and stood in front of him. And of course, he has a GoPro. And they would challenge him. And some of them would mock him. Some of them would try to corner him and, you know, get, an, get, get a gotcha moment in with him. And the whole time, this man remained humble. He remained focused. He gave good biblical answers to people's objections. But most of all, he was clear. He was clear with those who were participating in the parade as they walked by. Your pride has condemned you. What you are celebrating, your homosexual behavior is sinful in the eyes of a holy God and he will judge you. You are mocking a God who will not be mocked. Your lifestyle has you on a death march to hell. This, this parade is taking you somewhere, and you're not going to like it. But there is good news about a man named Jesus. And this man was clear. He was compassionate. He preached Christ. He stood composed under pressure. As I watched this, and I went back and watched it a couple times, I, I experienced three things. First, my heart was filled with anger. Not at the people parading by, but at the sin, the sexual perversion, something that God has given us as a gift so good and right. And in their sinfulness, man has twisted it for their own glory and self-gratification. I was angry with Satan. I was angry with the sin that was being celebrated on this street. But I was also feeling compassion because I understood this is the death march. This is nothing to celebrate. Your sin has condemned you. And unless you turn to Jesus, you get off of this parade route. Well... You'll find out sooner or later that God will not be mocked. But then it rushed into gratitude. 
because I realized apart from the grace of God, I'm in that parade. Oh, maybe not literally, but figuratively, I was marching step with step with every one of those people. And so as I thought about this scene in Psalm 47 this week, as I laid my hand to the study this week, I thought about that parade. I thought about that scene. See, 47, Psalm 47 has been referred to as the exclamation point on Psalm, 7, or on Psalm 46. Psalm 46, if you were here last week, you know that, that in Psalm 46, God's people are comforted as they consider him as their all-powerful, all-sufficient, all-good, all-knowing refuge. But as the Psalm 46 goes, you also saw that at the same time, the arrogant nations and kingdoms that are raging and tottering, if you will, shaking their fists at God, they were rebuked in Psalm 46 with that immediate statement, God utters one word and the earth melts. God utters one word and you raging nations, you are nothing. You are brought to dust. And so now in Psalm 47, and by the way, the order here is no coincidence, those same nations and kingdoms, they're summoned. They're summoned to repent and join God's people in praising him as the one true king above all kings. And though though this psalm was written 3,000 years ago, it could not be more relevant for us today. Our country is on a death march, unable to escape what James Montgomery Boyce says is the inexorable law of history, namely that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And I'm not going to present a plan to you to change the world this morning. I'm not going to present to you a revolution that we need to begin right here in our, in our own little four walls. In fact, where we end might surprise you. But there is something for us here that I believe will transform us. Psalm 47 begins with a command to worship and to worship with visible excitement and joy. Look at what it says in verse 1. Clap your hands. That's what we were doing this morning, clapping our hands. God says, my people, clap your hands. Then it goes on to say, shout with loud songs of joy. I love that. Verse 1 presents Psalm 47 as a noisy celebration. I was going to use that title, but somebody that I was drawing from already used it, and I just didn't want to take their title. So it is he is worthy this morning. But he's right. This is a noisy celebration in Psalm 47. In fact, so noisy is this, and so pervasive is the idea of singing and worship that I'm going to sing the rest of the sermon. Amen. Okay? I told the guys that this morning. They said, no, you're not. I submitted. But boy, do I want to. We need Brett. Now, this is a noisy celebration, and I want you to notice that the summons to praise God goes beyond God's people. Look what it says at the end of verse 1. Clap your hands... All peoples, all peoples, 
Shout to God with loud songs of joy. All peoples, that includes the raging nations and the tottering kingdoms of Psalm 46. And here is why. Look at verse 2. For purpose. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. Verse 2 is astonishing. It's astonishing. Uh, in, in, ancient, in ancient Near East, in the ancient Near East, people believed, you history bus will know this, but people believed their gods, that the gods were exclusive to the nations. Every nation had a god, right? So there was a sense that the Syrians served their God and, and the Babylonians served their God and, and, and Israel served their God, right? To each his own, right? Wrong. The psalmist here in verse 2 makes a momentous proclamation about the God of Israel. Notice what he says. He says, the Lord. Now, in your Bible, that's probably all caps, which means it denotes that personal, intimate, covenantal name of God. We talked about it last week. The I am that, that, that represents God's unchanging character and, and his sovereignty and providence over all things. And then he doesn't stop there. He says, the Lord, the Most High. That's a title that communicates God's sovereignty over not just a, a small, tiny nation, but over all of humanity. He doesn't stop there. He says, the Great King. You know, that, 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 that actually was a title that was used for kings of larger nations as they related to smaller nations. Larger nations would would promise protection to the smaller nations in exchange that the smaller nations would pledge loyalty to the great king of the larger nation. And so the, the king of, or, or the god of the, the, yeah, the king of the larger nation. So that king of that larger nation, their king was the great king. All other smaller kings subordinated to the great king. The smaller countries ultimately had to give loyalty to subordinating their own kings. See what the psalmist is doing here in verse 2. He makes a call. All peoples everywhere, all nations, all kingdoms, praise the God of Israel, the Lord, the Most High, the Great King. This is a, the psalmist is giving the, the, the psalmist is giving uh, a poetic beatdown, if you will, to the nation's small g gods. He is saying Yahweh is not a God of many. He is the most high. He is the Lord, the most high, the great king over all the earth. And verse 2, as such, he is to be feared. Feared. He is to be served. 
He is to be praised by all people everywhere. You know, the gay pride parade that I mentioned earlier, it, it, it was just, it's a, it was a display of self-deity at the end of the day. All little gods. All little gods mocking the one true God. Mocking him to his face. There were moments in that parade, he would say, he would say things like, your sin is against God. And it's perilous. And people walk by and go, yeah! They were rejoicing. They were celebrating when he would make statements about their sin and the righteousness of God. They were mocking. They were mocking his God. But God, Scripture teaches us, God will not be mocked. He is patient, for sure. But he will not be Mocked. He will not stomach any rivals. And there's a day when the entire history of mankind will come to a profound and immediate understanding of what it means. If you are his rival, here's what that means. Any person who refuses to turn to God in repentance and faith will be judged eternally. That day's coming. Scripture is clear. Jesus was clear. The Bible is clear. The prophets were clear. It's coming. But at the same time, God is not a tyrant, is he? <laughs> He's not a tyrant. He's patient. He's merciful. And his people know this about him personally. In fact, look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. After this global summons to acknowledge God as the Lord. Verse 3. He gives some reasons now for his people. He subdued people under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us. The pride of Jacob, whom he loves. That, that phrase there, the, the, the pride of Jacob, is probably a reference to the promised land. You know that God acted on behalf of his undeserving people by subduing and conquering their enemies, beginning with Pharaoh and Egypt, and then along the way to the promised land. He provided and he cared for them ensuring that at least some of them made their way, finally found the promised land. He subdued their enemies under their feet. And he did this. He chose this for them. He picked their, he picked their destiny. He chose their heritage as his people. Remember what, what, what Moses reminded the Israelites of on the banks of the Jordan in Deuteronomy. When you get over there, guys, remember how you got here. There's nothing special about you. It's not because you were a big nation. It's not because you were an impressive people. It's because he chose to love you. He chose your heritage. He gave you your allotment. He did this. He is 
a merciful God. And so he gave them the promised land. He gave them their heritage, a gift of love that they did not deserve. Now notice the call to praise. The call to praise the great king continues in verse 5 as the psalmist draws attention to another great event in redemptive history. Draws their attention to perhaps one of the single greatest events of David's day. Look at verse 5. Can you guys hear me okay? Okay, good. I'm about to belt out in song to make sure you hear me. So, Verse 5. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with a sound, with the sound of a trumpet. You know what he's, I think what he's referring to here? I think he's referring to that, that scene in 2 Samuel 6. Remember, the Lord has just delivered the Philistines into Israel's hands. And guess what they're doing? They're returning to Jerusalem, shouting and celebrating. And you know what they have with them? They have the ark. It's back. Just before this glorious scene, the text reminds us that God delivered the Philistines into your hands. And they are celebrating. There is this procession into the city of Jerusalem. It says this in 2 Samuel 6.15. It's almost word for word. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a horn. So the psalmist is taking, taking us back to this momentous day of celebration and great praises for the provision and the redemption of God. It's a, it's a wonderful picture of God victoriously ascending his earthly throne to the shouts and praises of his people. This great redeeming king dwells with his people in triumph and glory, and the Lord is in the midst of her. His presence, he made his presence known at the mercy seat on the ark. The Lord is in the midst of his people. He has defeated the Philistines. And so in verse, in verse 8, it says, or, uh, I'm looking at Psalm 47, sorry. In verse 8, it says, God reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. I think the point here is pretty clear. There is only one true God. And he is no ordinary king. There is one true God. And this God, he is no ordinary king. And this point is emphasized with the second summons to praise the great king in verse 6. Look what it says. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. You know what? That's the same thing that verse 1 and 2 says, just a little differently. <laughs> and did you notice that? Sing praises to God. Not once, not twice, not even the holy thrice. 
Not four times should I keep going, but I know I sound like an infomercial, but five times. Five times. Sing praises to God. Listen, I think that means we are meant to feel the weight of the glory and majesty of our King. And that weight is meant to move us to something. We don't just nod our heads in agreement. No, what what stirs in us can't be contained by us. And so we sing praises. It's what we did this morning. And we can never praise God sufficiently for his glory and his majesty. And that's why there's a thing called eternity. Because we'll need all of it. Just to scratch the surface in our praises. That he is truly worthy. I love Spurgeon. I just... Don't you, Spurgeon just says things so well. I, can I was like, get up here and quote Spurgeon for 45 minutes. <laughs> Speaking of this, this, this five, uh, this, this sing praise, he says, what jubilation is here when five times over the whole earth is called upon to sing to God? Never let the music pause. He never ceases to be good. Let us never cease to be grateful. And then he says this, so true, strange that we should need so much urging to attend to so heavenly an excuse. Oh, that hit me this week. Lord, why do I need? Why do I need? Sing praises, sing praises, sing praises, sing praises, sing praises. Listen, did you, did you need urging this morning to sing? Just be honest. Did you need urging? I feel like Tom did a good job this morning of caring for us. But if you need urging to gather on Sunday morning and sing and clap your hands and express with your body the glory of your King, I would humbly and carefully submit to you that's a spiritual red flag. If you're a statue, when we sing, that's a spiritual red flag. And if you want to say, well, pastor, no, 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 I have kids, I'd love to hear them. I will buy you a cup of coffee. I will buy you lunch. (laughs) Let's talk about corporate worship. Fact, we're going to. In the next year, we're going to do a series on corporate worship. What does biblical, what does that 25-minute part of our service, what, what should it look like? Not according to our personalities and our feelings and our circumstances, but according to the Word of God. We're going to do that in the next 12 months. Now listen, it, I said earlier that that's a red flag if it's a struggle for you to worship. That doesn't mean that the struggle to worship is absent. It just means whatever your struggle is, it is not greater than the glory of Christ your King. 
And it is not more powerful than the Holy Spirit. And so pay attention to that. And here's why. Because you have been made part of something. There is this sudden shift to end the psalm. Verse 9. There's this new era in God's kingship that unfolds. Look at it with me. Verse 9. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. From the shields of the earth, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. That, that, that verse 9, in, for me at least, it just seems to come out of nowhere. But, but let's just unpack it a little bit. You can unpack it more at home. But do you remember what the Lord said to Abraham in Genesis 12? Right? He promised him. He made him a promise. He said that the nations would be blessed through him. And then if you keep reading Abraham's biography, in Genesis 15, we find God promises him that his offspring would be like the stars, too many to count. Remember that? Now that promise, as redemptive history unfolds, we learn that that promise went far beyond Israel. It went far beyond Abraham's physical descendants. It wasn't physical, in fact. It was a spiritual promise, ultimately. Galatians 3 says, Know then that this, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Did you catch that in verse 7? The scripture foreseeing that God would justify who? The Gentiles. The Gentiles then would be counted as Abraham's spiritual sons and daughters. It wasn't a physical promise, ultimately. It was a spiritual promise. And this is what begins to come into view in verse 9. This, this future, if you look there, the princes of the peoples, and the, the princes of the peoples, I think that's a, a reference to you know, people in high places. Certainly, the shields of the earth, I think that's probably a reference to earthly kings whose job it is to, above all things, protect the people that they rule and reign over, their subjects. But they are Gentiles. They are part of the raging nations and tottering kingdoms. They will, we know that because of that, look what it says, the prince of the peoples gather as the people 
of the God of Abraham, with the people of the God of Abraham. And so this is an astounding verse. This is an astounding way to end this psalm. The princes are Gentiles. The psalmist is saying there's a day coming when God's love and mercy and grace will not only be for Israel, but the Gentiles as well, i.e. all the peoples of the earth. (laughs) Those who were once strangers... And aliens to the covenant people of God, Israel, well, they will be brought near. They will be made part. I encourage you this week in your private Bible study to spend some time in Ephesians 2. There's some application for you. Ephesians 2, particularly verses 11 through 22, you just draw a straight line from 47.9 to Ephesians 2, 11 to 20. That, that is what it looks like. <laughs> and at the heart of that, at the heart of that is the work of Christ that draws those who were once outside the covenant people, the peoples, now gathered as God's church, sing his praises. As one. Listen, the psalmist here is looking forward to the day when the invitation in verse 1 for all the people to clap their hands and shout praises to the Lord Most High and great King over all the earth is fulfilled. It points to a gathering of all nations to praise God as the great King and highly exalted King over all. I I love what Derek Kidner says. Derek Kidner in his brief but brilliant commentary, uh, he begins chapter 47 by saying this, from the first word to the last, he's speaking of Psalm 47, this communicates the excitement and jubilation of the enthronement and the king is God himself. And 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 more than poetry, this is prophecy whose climax is exceptionally far reaching. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is far-reaching from a small nation. From a small nation to all the peoples. It reaches into eternity when indeed, as Jesus said, he will be exalted. He will draw all men to him. As Paul says to the Ephesians, he has been given the name above all other names. As it says in Philippians, every knee will bow one day and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we're somewhere in between the psalmist and that day. (laughs) We're the church. It's not Israel and the church, it's the church. Israel was God's Old Testament people. The church, we are God's people. And guess what? You are part of it. You are part of it. You are right there in verse 9. Because at one time, you were in verse 1, all the peoples. You were, you were in 
Verse 3, he subdued people under us. You were the ones, you were the Gentiles. You, you were the ones far off. We were the ones who had to be brought near. You're part of it. It's not because we're smart. It's not because we're intuitive. It's not because we're wise. We're gathered right now as an expression of verse 9. As the people of the God of Abraham. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 47. Listen, just go back to that scene, just in, in 2 Samuel, just as God entered Jerusalem in a procession of celebration in David's day, a millennia later, Jesus, his son, would enter that same city in a procession, a celebration. We know it in the Gospels as the triumphant entry. But the mercy seat of the ark wouldn't be where he would be displayed as a king of all kings. He, his place, his lot was a cross. Of course, the inscription said king of the Jews. But Psalm 47, 9 reminds us, no, it was never merely the king of the Jews. It was the king of all kings. It was the great king, the Lord, the most high, who came, entered fallen humanity, became a servant, made himself nothing, and offered himself up as a sin sacrifice for you and me and in doing so made Psalm 47 9 possible not only today but on that great day when our king comes back and for once and all establishes his kingdom Galatians 3 says it this way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. We might say, so that in Christ Jesus all the peoples could join the people of the God of Abraham, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus fulfills this psalm by becoming our great king of all the earth. More than that, he establishes his throne and he is victorious and triumphant over something far greater than any nation, far greater than any kingdom, and that is Satan and death itself, the sentence of sin. That which even the nations and kingdoms cannot defeat. Christ is our victor. He is the victor for 
the sinner. His coronation was on a cross where justice and mercy met to make all people everywhere, regardless of their nation, regardless of their tribe, regardless of their tongue, his people, the people of God, so that all men everywhere could belong to God by faith, the same faith that Abraham had. Listen, people everywhere are searching, aren't they? They're, we're all individual nations raging. Just you see it out there. You see it on the internet. You see it on the news. That, that parade. They were raging. And whether or not, how, to whatever degree they understand their thinking and their behavior in that way, I think Paul is pretty clear in Romans. Well, we know. <laughs> we have a conscience. The Lord has given us a conscience. We know. We know something is wrong, and we know what is wrong and right. The Lord has set eternity in our hearts. There is something there. We might feel like we're doing pretty good, but deep inside we know we're searching for something. We know something is off. We know something is not working right. And so we, we search. People are searching for meaning and purpose. They can't find it. And so they rage inside. And their rage is so strong that it bubbles out of them in things like sexual perversion, in things like addiction, in things like violence, in things like power trips, human authority trips, in things like abuse. And in its own way, Psalm 47 says, be still and know that I am God. Rest your weary hearts in me, the great king over all the earth. It's why we share Jesus with our neighbors and our friends and our unsaved family members and our co-workers, and we don't worry about the consequences because no boss of yours is king over all the earth. <laughs> Jesus is. So listen, 3,000 years after this psalm is written, here we are. How do we apply it? Well, the first thing I have to ask is this. Is Christ your king today? I'm not going to assume that. Is he your king today? Paul Tripp talks about 10,000 moments. A Christian life is about 10,000 little moments 
where he is just transforming us into his grace. We don't get a lot of big moments in life. We all might have a handful of them. But really, the Christian life is about small moments where God is at work moving us an inch closer into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. But there are big moments, and this is one of them right now. (laughs) Because we don't know when our great king will return. You don't know. You don't know the expiration date of your life that he has set. And Lord willing, I hope this isn't true, but for some, that might be tomorrow. For someone, that might be tonight. Do you know Christ as your king? The one who paid the price for your sin. He's the one you're searching for. He's the satisfaction that you're longing for. He's the peace that you desire in your life. And you can come to him right now in the biggest moment of your life, this side of heaven, sorry spouse, even bigger than your wedding day. By faith, he can become your king. Absolve all your sin. And make your life a song of joy and grace and mercy on your way to heaven. Take you off that death march and put you on a life march. Is Christ your king today? For the rest of us who would say yes to that, by the way, if Christ isn't your king today, it's not rocket science. With a genuine heart, acknowledge you're a sinner. And ask God to apply the work of his son Jesus to your sin. Ask him to be merciful and forgive you and to keep you and to fill you. There's no special prayer. Romans 10 says, repent if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord. He will save you. And you know why it can be that simple? Because all the work's been done. It was done 2,000 years ago at the cross, and the empty tomb sealed it. No one can reverse it. It's a beautiful thing. Come to Jesus this morning. This is the biggest moment in your life. For the rest of us who would say, yes, thank God. Here's my question. Is Christ the King worthy, worth your kingly praises? And this might surprise you. I'm going to get very practical here. Sometimes the application is so clear in the text. As a preacher, you got all these application ideas and thoughts. But then you look at the text, you go, oh, (laughs) I think there's a point being made here that I dare not overlook. 
Here's what's clear in Psalm 47. Christian worship, and by that I mean what we do for 25 minutes every Sunday morning, is meant to be a noisy celebration. When we gather, and this has been true of God's people since the beginning. When, 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 when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, what did they do? They sang. They didn't immediately start planning. They sang the praises of their Redeemer God. They sang the praises of their sovereign king. When we gather as God's people, we sing. And listen, on one sense, our singing, it is simply joyful obedience because the Bible over and over and over calls us, commands us, forcefully invites us to sing his praises. And it matters. That little, that little time of 25 minutes, it matters. Our singing matters to what is happening out there because what we do in here shapes and informs what we do out there. And for 25 minutes every Sunday morning, we have 52 of these moments in a year. 52 of these moments in a year. And they might seem little. Pastor, really? You're telling me the application is sing? <laughs> Yes, but that seems so small and insignificant. Oh, really? It's not to God. Just read Psalm 47. 25 minutes every Sunday, we gather with a single purpose of proclaiming the greatness of our Redeemer, King Jesus. And one way we do that is we we sing. We sing praises to his name. Listen, you can't walk away from Psalm 47 without saying that Psalm 47 unequivocally and unapologetically teaches us that our great king is so great that praise, the praises that begin in the heart cannot and should not be contained by the heart. Indeed, they are expressive. I said it. There you go. <laughs> they are expressive. Clap your hands, the psalmist says. Shout loud songs of joy to the Lord. Sing praises, sing praises, sing praises, sing praises, sing praises. Do you get the point? I had a little extra pop in my step this morning. I don't know if you noticed. But it's because of Psalm 47. I'm not trying to impress you. I'm not trying to be somebody. I'm not trying to manipulate you into worshiping like me. I got Psalm 47 in my soul. I got truth compelling me and driving me. I, listen, this is going to be hard for some people here. Listen to what James Montgomery Boyce says. Let's be done with worship that is always weak and unexciting. If you cannot sing loudly and make loud music to praise the God who has redeemed you in Jesus Christ and is preparing you for heaven, here's the hard part, 
Perhaps it is because you do not really know God or the gospel at all. I do not say that lightly. And I submit if that startles you, good. The greatness and glory of Jesus and what he has done for us and what that means for us, not just in everyday trials, but for eternity, you have been plucked from the grips of Satan and an eternity of hell. Well, that, that just does not allow for weak and unexciting praises. In the words of Alan Ross, the muted and lifeless doxology that so often occurs in our congregations. The gospel doesn't allow for that. It doesn't. No Christ, no Christ, no, comma, says my notes. Christ is more than worthy of our expressive acclamations of praise. I'm great. Listen, I'm grateful for our time of singing. I'm grateful for our musicians. I'm grateful every Sunday morning when I hear your voices, the music, the voices, the expressed love for Jesus. But still, we all need to keep growing in our praises because I'm just, listen, we struggle. We heard it this morning in the call to worship. There are things that keep us from singing. There are things that keep us from clapping and raising our hands. And he is worthy for me to make a fool out of myself for his glory. There are things. Yes, there's a reality. Sometimes we need to be urged, but that doesn't mean that's right. It just means we're missing something. It means we need to refocus. And that's what our call to worship is about. It's to focus and say, to prepare our hearts to sing. That's why if you come here late, we're not letting you in. <laughs> because we don't want you distracting the call to worship. Because the call to worship is us in this room being prepared to do what we were created to do. And indeed, the only appropriate thing, the most appropriate thing that we should be doing as we meet is singing the praises of our great king. We'll talk more about that when we do our series on worship. Don't miss it. <laughs> Listen, the, the joy and the loudness and the expressiveness of our worship is not a sovereign grace thing. Don't, 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 don't go there. It's not a charismatic thing. It's not a personality thing. It's a God thing. Just read your Bible. It's a gospel thing. Just read your Bible. It's a grace thing. Just read your Bible. It's a Jesus thing. He, he is worthy, and this is God's desire for you. It is God's desire for our church to be fools on Sunday morning. He he is worthy. And my prayer, 
your pastor's prayer, and I hope your prayer, is that Sovereign Grace Church would be known for every Sunday a joyful and noisy celebration. Let us be orderly, yes. If you get out of order, a pastor will tell you so. (laughs) Let us be orderly, but may our worship not be muted and lifeless. May it declare the glory of our King Jesus, because you know what? Any expression that you can give to him, there is no greater purpose for your voice box than to sing praise to him. There's no greater purpose for your hands and arms than to be lifted up. There's no greater purpose for your hands than clapping to the praise and the glory of Jesus. He is worthy of our loud praises. Yes, he is. So would you stand and join me now as we do just that.